and welcome to our class podcast for American Writers 2, 1865 to the present. I'm Dr. Carrie Tippin, your instructor and host. Today we're discussing some fiction writers of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, Nella Larson, and Richard Wright. Let's meet our panel. Today panel, tell us your name, your major, and your power song, like a song that gets you going, like the song that can pump you up no matter what. Um, who wants to go first? How about Dylan, you go first today. Hi guys, um, I'm Dylan. I'm a business management major and um, I would say Amazing by Kanye. Okay, cool. All right, gets you going. Caroline, this is your first podcast. Welcome. Hi, I'm Caroline. I'm a history major with like an education minor and my power song probably came out swinging by the Wonder Years. Nice. That's a good one. It's even got a nice title. Yes. Or a power song came out singing. I like it. <laughs> Phoebe, say good morning. Hello, I'm Phoebe. I'm an English major, and my power song is probably Kiwi by Harry Styles. Cute. That's a cute, cute choice. Uh, my name is Dr. Tippin. My major is English, and my power song is Dolly Parton's Clear Blue Morning. Right? I can see the light of a clear blue morning. Gets me going every time. All right, everybody, let's do the thing. Um, we want to start with uh, Zora Neale Hurston's The Gilded Six Bits. Uh, Phoebe, you volunteered to give us a summary of the story. Take it away. Yeah, so it kind of just is focusing on, in the beginning of the story, it talks about just this couple, um, their names, Missy May and Joe, I believe. Right. And, they're just kind of like this perfect little, like cute little Southern couple, I feel like. And then they're just kind of talking about, you know, there's this new man in town, ice cream parlor, they're gonna go visit. Um, and he's very, very wealthy and kind of has this like, I don't know. I was kind of thinking of like a Tony Stark demeanor the whole time, I don't know why, but that kind of energy. Um, and I mean, one thing leads to another Missy May ends up having an affair with this man. And honestly, I have a clarifying question. I'm not yes. sure if he offered her money first or if she was like, I can do this for money for my family. Oh. Like, I know it's not, it was like gold pieces and things like that. So I don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't know where the money part comes in. There's but there was definitely some sort of like capital being thrown around there. Yeah. Um, and maybe a question of consent too, because she says like, he just kept after me. He just kept after me. Yeah. Maybe it's like, it's easier to get over with and then maybe he'll leave me alone. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. And then Joe comes home and ends up finding them together, which broke my heart. It was really sad. I know. He, on the way there, he was like, I'm just so happy and content with my marriage. Like one day we're going to have a kid and it's going to be so beautiful. And then he walks in and sees them together. And he's like, well, there goes that, I guess. Yeah. But you know, at the end, they end up kind of fixing it. And he's the one actually that kind of like mends it by using these gold pieces to buy her kisses, yes. which are like little, I'm assuming they're little molasses like, kisses, no less. Like little like candies and yeah they end up kind of mending this broken marriage after she, or he, um, you know, Slemons kind of does this thing to his wife. Yeah. And the thing that kind of brings them back together is kind of proof that the baby she has is his and not the other guys. Yeah. Sort of like, we need to answer that question before the marriage can be mended. 
and it's almost like awkward at first because she like makes a comment and is like you know he looks just like you the baby looks just like you and he's like does it and then he's like oh yeah no it does it's fine yeah yeah or maybe you know maybe it doesn't matter anymore I think we can I think you can interpret some of that a little bit on your own yeah good any other clarifying questions Dylan Caroline things that were confusing or hard to understand um I guess like my like that's why I asked my question like why do you think she was not loyal because like he does say she like she realizes like she loves him after the fact and it's not that she didn't love him before right that their relationship seems really loving and fun aren't they fun people they have this adorable banter and these rituals where they kind of chase each other it's also kind of sexy right they're kind of into each other um like basically tearing each other's clothes off in this fun game and they're like wrestling you know right so so it's not like their relationship is bad so dylan i would love to hear what you think why do you think she's not loyal to joe if she loved him before and she loves him after honestly i kind of got a sense of maybe she's like lonely or she's not like getting the attention that she like she needs that makes sense uh yeah any other ideas, Caroline? Do you have an idea about why she has this? Well, um, I don't know. It's kind of not like related to that exact question, but I just thought it was kind of weird because in the beginning she was like, oh, he's not attractive. Um, talking yeah. about what's his name? Um, Slimmons is his last name. Yeah. Yeah. Slimmons. She was like, oh yeah, he's not attractive because, um, Joe was going on about how, you know, a lot of women thought he was attractive. And she was like, no, like, you're the only one I have eyes for, blah, blah, blah. But then, like, she goes and hooks up with him. Yeah. And she saw him, like, before, because Joe was like, oh, have you heard about this guy? And she was like, oh, yeah, like, I've seen him around. So I'm like, have they, like, known each other before the first, like, before Joe walked in, maybe? Yeah, that's a thing. I think they both talk about Missy May and Joe both talk about how they've never been anywhere and they've never done anything else. But here's this rich, rich man. I'm gonna put it in quotation marks, rich man uh, from Chicago, whose richness I think is maybe overstated. I don't think he's quite as rich as he thinks. This gilded six bits, what that means is like quarters that have been covered in gold. Uh, so it's like, but why do you gold plate a quarter? It's still worth a quarter. And in fact, if you gold plate it, it's actually not worth a quarter anymore. <laughs> it's not even legal tender anymore. So the the guild, I think, uh, points to his falseness, right? He's falsely rich. He's a hollow kind of person, but he's a city guy. He's new. He's interesting. He's from somewhere else. And he kind of has this like cultural capital, this social capital, he's cool. And so like getting to hook up with the cool guy in town is not nothing. Phoebe, you suggested when we were talking as a clarifying question, uh, like maybe the money had something to do with it. Tell me what you're thinking about there. I honestly feel like it was more like a power move on her part because like, you know, like I feel like we've talked about using like your beauty as a capital in this on this podcast before. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of what she was doing, like not as a way to like not be loyal or loyal to her husband, but almost like I know I can do this and gain something from it for the 
her family, I guess. And I feel like that's why she did it. More of like a, I'm doing this for the greater good of my family, not to stab my husband in the back. Yeah, it has less to do with Joe and more to do with herself, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, and to get more money, I mean, the ritual that they have is on payday, he gives her all of his all of his wages, right? And he does it in this very playful, fun, uh, sexual ritual of throwing them in the door and then she piles them up by her plate. So money matters to this family, right? And it's a it's a really important and it's important to know that it's silver, right? He gets these silver dollars that he gives to her and she pack, you know, plays with them and stacks them and they're there on the table and they joke about it and she's being cared for. She's got candy coming in every week. She's got these $9 coming in every week. Uh, but there's something about this other thing, this gold thing that is attractive to her and him, right? Uh, Joe is kind of attracted to Slimmons. Maybe not in the same way, but does anybody want to say any more about that? Why is, why is Joe kind of obsessed with him too? I feel I like it's because, go Phoebe then Dylan. I feel like it's kind of because he had this like Tony Stark energy where he was just like, I know that I'm rich and I can do whatever I want. And I honestly feel like that's part of why like he could, Joe could forgive Missy because he was like, oh no, I understand what you're doing. So like, yeah, just, I would have done it too if, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Dylan, what did you want to add to that? I was just going to say, I think he like envies him, you know, yeah. like you said before, like he's, it's he's new he's you know he's from like a, a city um chicago and like he's kind of like the man now in in this town so um, yes. yeah dylan i'm so glad you said that he's kind of the man in the town right now caroline you asked a question about masculinity on another story but i think it applies here too right that that joe is one form of masculinity and slimmons is another and what, so Joe, why is he so broken up about this affair? Say something about that. How do you see this as a masculinity struggle? What might be going on here? Caroline, I'll let you start. Um, that's, that's a good question too. I'm really not sure. Question. <laughs> Joe, he very well could be because like I said earlier, he's always talking about how like cool Slemons is and attractive and how everyone's kind of going crazy about him. Um, so like maybe he feels threatened and yeah, like his for place in life is kind of being rattled, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's something too about an affair that is always damaging to both parties, right? To whether, you know, whatever gender you ascribe to in this situation, when your sexual partner picks a different sexual partner, you can't help but think about and especially because like they're in a committed relationship and yeah. because he knew like you know this guy's a big hot shot like seeing his wife like sleep with him like that that's gotta hurt <laughs> and like yeah. yeah I mean that probably feels like he's getting knocked down a few pegs and like his comfort with himself right probably not really there now add paternity into that question the ability to impregnate uh, might be related to masculinity, yeah? 
what do you think it would have been different? Well, let's talk about the baby, right? So, so he realizes that she's pregnant and that puts this kind of uh, even more cooling between them. Uh, and then she has the baby and Phoebe and I talked about in the summary, maybe he looks like him, maybe the baby doesn't, it is a boy. Tell me what would have happened in this story if it was a girl. Tell me what would have happened if it didn't look like him. How do you think that might have affected the ending? I think, I mean, they definitely wouldn't have ended up staying together. You think? Um, I Personally, yeah. I mean, I also think, um, like, for a while, he kind of was just accepting that it, that it happened. Like, he wasn't really, like, angry. Like, I don't want to, okay, maybe he was angry, but he didn't really show it. Yeah. You know? He wasn't, like... <sighs> super like you know going crazy he just was very like um like passive aggressive sort of yeah isn't that interesting and the way you phrased it Dylan it seemed like you expected uh a man like him to go wild right his wife has cheated on him maybe he would respond with violence maybe he would respond with anger you said but instead he goes sort of like deep he goes quiet he goes distant he goes cold and, and I think that's, I think that's because of the reasons like we just talked about before, like he's like hurting so much and he's asking himself like, why is like, am I not good enough? Or yeah. what did he have that like, I don't have, and, or maybe he clearly can see that. I mean, because he does have, you know, some sort of capital, some sort of wealth that he kind of um, like he would like to have, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah, he's got eyes. He knows what's going on. He knows why she was attracted to him and that he can't compete in those particular ways. Phoebe, what do you think about the ending? I feel like the whole time with the affair and everything, he was just very like doubtful and insecure, like yeah. thinking to himself like, oh, you know, what does this person have that I don't? And, you know, like, I feel like he just came to terms with himself and he was like, you know what she says that she loves me. So I'm going to believe her. And we have this kid now and it's a boy. So that means he'll grow up and he can do all these great things and it's all fine again. Yeah, it does kind of bring things together. Do you think it's the boyness that- Yeah, because I feel like if he, if they had a daughter, he would be like, I feel there's always like a frustration where they're like, oh, like what's she gonna do, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because it's a boy, you know, he can be like, oh, I have a son now and now I feel connected to her again and like, it all just comes back together. And like a future, a legacy, our, like the family has a legacy in a son that might not be there in a daughter. Yeah. Do you think he really is, it really is Joe's son, Phoebe? Or does it matter? I, I don't know if it's his. I want it to be because yeah. he seems like, he seems like a, a good man, kind yeah. of. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't really know. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. also I don't think it really matters if he believes it's his. Then it might as well be, you know. Yeah, if he believes it is, it brings them back together. It, it kind of ends where it begins. So I think they're both gonna. We can imagine a happy future for this family, kind of coming back to their old rituals. A little bit changed, right? She says, "Wait till I get my strength back, and I'm gonna fix you for that." <laughs> kind of like uh, when when things are stronger. 
we'll get our game back, right? Everything will be back the way it was. Your questions though, and I don't wanna to take too much time because we have other stories too. Caroline and Phoebe both asked kind of about the beginning description of the house, which doesn't have anything to do with the conflict of the story, which I think is why it drew your attention. So Caroline, you were asking like, why do we care about the appearance of their house? And Phoebe, why is it whitewashed? Uh, so Caroline, I'll let you go first. What do you think about that description of their house? Well, like in the beginning, they were just mentioning like the flowers and the fence. And I guess like to me, it kind of just looked like they were trying to play it off. Like they're a perfect couple living a perfect uh -huh. life, maybe. And before Slemons like came to town, it didn't seem like there was any problems prior. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, like I, I kind of took it as like, oh, like maybe that's just like a mask, kind of like. Okay, okay. They're taking care of it, right? They're working on their outside performance. And yeah, and the fact that she can be taken in by this, you know, fancy man, uh, says maybe there's more cracks under there than we thought. I'm into that. Dylan, what do you think? Can you repeat that again? I'm sorry. Oh, just about that outside description of the house. Maybe I'll read it a little bit and then we can kind of pick on some of the details. Um, so first sentence, it was a Negro yard around a Negro house in a Negro settlement that looked to the payroll of the G&G &G fertilizer works for its support. Let's just start with that sentence. Why does she need to say that Negro three times? Any good reason? I guess like emphasizing that they're like an African-American family. Yeah, we definitely cannot be mistaken about that, <laughs> right? So I guess it matters, right? Maybe it matters that they're Black in this story. I'm not sure if it does or not, but uh, it seems to in that first sentence. Uh, there's something happy about the place. The front yard was parted in the middle by a sidewalk from gate to doorstep, a sidewalk edged on either side by quart bottles driven neck down into the ground on a slant. Did you, so, so like the line, it's lined with bottles, shiny, uh, kind of pretty colors probably, but it's lined with bottles. Is that cool? Do you like that? What do you think about that? Does it say anything, Phoebe? I don't know what it says, but it sounds kind of cool. It sounds kind of cool, crafty. Yeah. Um, and think about how much they like money, interested in money it is an appearance. They wanted their sidewalk to be lined, clean, uh, shiny, colorful, pretty, and it's on a dime, right? It's empty glass bottles. So it's not actually fancy, but it looks fancy. And they're kind of into that. Uh, more about the flowers, a mess of homey flowers were planted without a plan, but blooming cheerily from their helter-skelter places. The fence and house were whitewashed. The porch and steps scrubbed white. The front door stood open to the sunshine uh, so that the floor of the front room could finish drying after its weekly scouring. Everything was clean from the front gate to the privy house. The yard was raked so that the strokes of the rake would make a pattern. Fresh newspaper was cut in a fancy edge on the kitchen shelves. All of these things about how clean, how clean, how clean. Tell me what you're thinking about there. Why is this, why is this important? And think about the ways that it's being cleaned that might be important. Anybody want to take a stab? I don't know, Phoebe, any thoughts? I don't know. I kind of agree with Carolyn when she said it's almost like it's so clean, it's like concerning where they're trying to like cover something up. I don't know. Okay. Like obsessively it's, clean yeah or it's just like I don't know I'm thinking of a very like cookie cutter kind of house thing mm -hmm. where it's like 
we're so relatable. Everything here is normal. Don't even worry about it. Everything's fine. Maybe so. <laughs> yeah, they're also like making do, right? Clean, lane, uh, cleaning, sorry, lining the kitchen shelves with newspaper. Uh, there's a fancier solution for that. But if you have newspaper, make it cut in fancy edges. Uh, or if you only have bottles, make them beautiful bottles. So there's a little bit of like poverty making do, but these are respectable people, right? These are not uh, violent people. They're not trashy. That's the word we use down here in the South. They're not, right? They're good, clean, respectable, hardworking people. And they too kind of fall into some of these traps of those fancy talking city folk. Yeah. Okay. I feel like it almost makes them like, especially like when this was written, it almost makes them more credible because they're like mm -hmm. not all of those things that you just listed, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that maybe gives uh, an audience a little more opportunity to uh, empathize or connect with them, maybe. Caroline, you also wanted to talk about this appearance description. Do you want to say any more about what this is about? Um, like the outside appearance of the house do yeah. you mean um I don't know like like Phoebe said like it's kind of just like it's too clean okay it's and plus like just how they describe it in the beginning they just like kind of make sure to set it up like just so you know like this house is you know it's really cookie cutter pretty it's yeah. perfect and then like they seem like such a good couple on the outside but like clearly there's some issues going on I'm with you. I think y'all are suspicious readers. <laughs> she says they're happy. The flowers are happy and cheerful. And you saw that and you're like, mm -mm, they're not cheerful. They're going to fall apart just any minute now. Really happy people don't need to always say they're happy though. If you got to keep saying like, oh, I'm such a good person. I'm this, that you're probably not that. I'm with you. I understand. I understand. That's funny. That's good. Well, that's how different readers go. <laughs> All right, cool. Let's go on to Sanctuary since we have three stories to do today. Uh, sanctuary. So I can't remember. Dylan, did you say you wanted to summarize this one? Yeah, sure. I'll do that one. Um, so Sanctuary, it takes place in um, North Carolina, like kind of on this just like old road. Um, and this man, you know, he's walking down a road um, and he like comes upon this house and he looks into the house and he sees this woman, Annie. Um, she's like in the kitchen, um, says mixing the supper biscuits. So she's getting um, dinner ready. Um, he goes to the door. Um, he tells her that he's in trouble and she asks what about and he says that he shot a man. Um, she asks if the man's dead. He says he doesn't know. She asks if he's white or black. He says he doesn't know. Um, she then tells him that like he can basically, um, I guess like hide at, at her house. Um, and her husband isn't home. Yeah. Um, so he's hiding and he starts to feel like you know, no one's going to come to the door. Um, like the authorities aren't going to come to the door and he's just going to be fine. He's going to be able to leave. Um, like nothing ever happened. But then eventually like he hears people outside, um, they knock and he hears this conversation. Um, 
between um, Miss Poole and the, and the man. And the man's basically saying that her husband was shot at work, um, like out back. And this person who shot him just ran off. Um, and I think, so after that, they leave and everything is kind of silent. And he realizes like what just happened, which is that he shot her husband. And um, so she comes into the room and, and she tells him to leave and to never come back. Yeah. Yeah, I, the only correction I have for you is that it's her son. Oh, it's her son? It's her son, yeah. But she oh. does not have a husband. Her husband is not mentioned. So I'm not sure if she had one, has one. He's, yeah, so Obadiah is her son. But other than that, spot on. And who is in charge, who, who killed her son? It was, it was the guy she's hiding, right? And she's hiding, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and Caroline and, and Dylan, you both thought that is strange. It is strange to be harboring the person who killed your son. You have an opportunity to, you have a, a cop directly in front of you. You can say, oh, I know who he is and I know where he is, go get him. But she does not do that. Uh, so Caroline, I'm gonna let you answer first. Do you have an idea why? Why does she protect him? Um, I think maybe it has something to do with race. Um, because I forget the exact line of it, but it was at the very, very end, like something about, um, it's on the screen in front of you, Caroline. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Something about, um, his race. So yeah, I think like maybe she was just trying to protect him because like she knew the consequences would be even worse Yeah, because of that. I don't know. Yeah. So at the beginning, when he comes in and she's like, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to get involved with a, a fugitive person, no matter who you think you shot or what you think you did. Um, he said, or she says, Obadiah, he's too good to y'all. Uh, no count trash. So she's saying he's trash. Uh, but since he likes you, I'll trust you. Um, she says, still considering all in all how Obadiah is right fond of you and how white folks is white folks. I'm gonna hide you this one time. So she's already thinking, no matter what he did or did not do, the fact that white people are involved, the stakes are higher and I'm gonna protect you because that's what we do, right? And then the last line is, uh, don't never stop thinking you're Jesus, that he doesn't give you that black face, that if you weren't black, I would not, you would not be alive right now, right? Uh, I think you're right. I think it has a lot to do with that. Dylan, what do you think? Does that explain what's going on here? I think it, it just says a lot about her. Like she's obviously very compassionate and yeah. um, forgiving. Yeah. Um, obviously like she was definitely the bigger person um, in that situation. Yeah. You have to yeah. have a big heart to just let somebody go who just murdered your son or a family member like that's yeah well murdered anyone right let's yeah. start with that <laughs> at yeah. the beginning that's anyone. already a compassionate gesture and then to add in that you did me personal wrong and I'm still protecting you that's yeah that's the highest of the high roads Dylan yeah Phoebe do you think there's anything else going on here no I feel like they just have like 
I mean, obviously they have like a common enemy and it's just like an unspoken agreement where they're like, we see each other, you know, like go about your ways, but don't ever come back here again because like, I'll let you go once, but yeah, you're done kind of thing. Yeah. Well, what do you think about Jim's uh, crime? It's not a purposeful, intentional, cold-blooded kind of thing. Can you describe maybe what happened? Dylan, do you have a sense of, of how this shooting went down? Honestly, I, I don't recall exactly how it went. Yeah. Um, it's a little hazy and it kind of comes partly from Jim's remembering while he's waiting. So on my 899, he's under the bed or under all those covers on the bed. Uh, and he starts thinking about what he did. Um, there was a spasm at his heart, a pain so sharp, so slashing. He had to suppress an impulse to cry out. He felt himself falling down, down, down. Everything grew dim and very distant in his memory, vanished, and then came rushing back. So we know something happened, uh, but then the cop, uh, the sheriff is the one who tells us that there was, um, he was trying to steal. Uh, so on page 900, he says, um, uh, there was a to-do, Annie, he says, at the garage back of the factory, fellow trying to steal tires. Obadiah heard a noise and ran out with two or three others, scared the rascal all right fired off his gun and run. We allow it to be Jim Hammer. So an accident, right? He, uh, he was in the middle of committing a different crime, it seems, and got scared and fired indiscriminately and ended up killing his best friend, more or less. Um, that's rough stuff. So why write a story about this? Maybe put me in that larger frame. Uh, oh, Phoebe, you asked about the symbolism of guns. Do you want to say anything about the, the gun part, the gun violence part? I don't I feel like you know there's always that argument where it's like oh no my sorry my dogs are going insane hey, but, it's finally your turn <laughs> I know um you know I feel like there's always the argument where it's like is it the people or the guns and I don't I just feel like I don't I don't know I just I don't know what they're trying to I feel like there is a bigger message with like yeah. is you know is it this person who has like a mean-spirited behavior and they're using this weapon to do things that they want to like almost get revenge or just get out aggression or is it just something that happened you know in both of the stories uh and you asked kind of about this connection between sanctuary and then almost a man that we'll talk about in a minute they both involve a gun in the hands of a young person firing at the wrong thing or unintentionally wounding and killing and murdering and I think you're right there's something about it that seems like a a danger it's not about dangerous bad people but about this danger too dangerous item and it's almost like the the availability they in both of the stories that they had to it like what how did it just how is that some I feel like I mean obviously it was different then but how is that something you just kind of have yeah I mean, in the, I mean, we haven't got to almost a man yet, but he pays $2 yeah. for this like weapon that you can use to like kill people. It's very scary. <laughs> it's kind of scary. Uh, Dylan, do you have any thoughts about this, about the, the gun? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's like the combination of um, the person and then um, the thing that 
causes inflicts the harm like i think it's just you know it's it's a combination of both um that make everything so deadly but the like definitely the access to the gun and um like phoebe said like the price well i guess that's in the next story but it was only so yeah, yeah it's like a little off yeah so in in the, in the example of jim hammer right he needs to steal tires or something why did i think he had to steal tires is that what it said uh trying to steal tires yeah that's what it says so so he has to steal tires but he has a gun uh so one of these things is hard to get and one of them is easy uh or one of them is legal to get and one of them is harder to get legally that kind of says something too well knowing that from the 20th to the 21st century we're still kind of talking about this relationship between race and gun violence uh and i think that this is not where it began, but I think it explains a little bit why this continues to be uh, a stereotype that we, uh, especially white folks, have. Um, okay, cool. Where I added a question about dialogue and narration that we can answer or not, <laughs> but uh, and when we first heard from like Paul Lawrence Dunbar, the very first thing that we read had a pretty heavy uh, emphasis on dialect. And it came up yesterday or Wednesday in our conversation about vernacular in poetry. Uh, and I think we can talk about it again here. Are we learning anything new about ways to use dialect or dialogue um, in here? This story in particular struck me as having a very different narrative voice from the dialogue of the speakers, right? The speakers speak in dialect, but the narrator does not. Anything about that that interests you that you want to talk about for a minute or two? Or are you like, I got it, Phoebe? I don't know. I just feel like whenever there's like a very, very big difference between like the narrator's dialect and the characters, yeah. it has a very like storytelling element where it's like, I, I can't tell if it like happened to this person or if it's this person kind of creating this like new story of something that's mm. going to happen before you know it makes it fictionalized yeah i'm with you uh dylan do you have a thought about the dialect um like when they're when they're different like that like i don't know for me like it, it definitely helps me understand sometimes. yeah <laughs> sometimes it's like you know it's broken english or something like that non-standard so. but yeah yeah yeah, so having that nice, clear narrative voice pop in and say, oh, okay, this explains what that means. Yeah. That's helpful. Caroline, other thoughts? Um, Kind of the same as Dylan. Like, it's nice whenever there's, like, a clear, yeah, like, narrator to yeah. understand everything, kind of. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good contrast to Almost a Man, which I'll let you uh, explain in just a minute, uh, Caroline. But it does not have... Uh, a clear dialect narrator, or, or the narrator speaks in dialect too, or the narrator narrates the character's thoughts in dialect as well, right? So we, we start on 1030, uh, the second sentence has that dialect. What's the use of talking with those people, right? Um, so it's not in the form of quotations, but it's still thinking in, in the dialect as well, or thinking in vernacular. Any, does, did that have a different reading experience for you? To have those, those thoughts represented too? 
Can you think of any good reason why it'd be different, Caroline? You're kind of you have a um, face on. <laughs> like some parts of it for me were kind of hard to understand. I had to go back and like read it a couple times and be like, oh, that's probably what it means. Yeah. So yeah, like the dialogue around it kind of like made it easier to piece what some words meant together. Mm -hmm. um, but some things were kind of hard. <laughs> yeah, there's still like anytime you read in a dialect, you have to kind of learn it a little bit and then you start to understand its patterns. Okay, cool. Caroline, I'll give you, go ahead. Give us the summary. Almost a man. What's it about? Okay, so the main character is named Dave. He's 17 years old and he lives with his mom and his dad and his, I think he has a brother, but the brother is not really mentioned. Um, yeah. So his household is very strict. Like his mom like keeps control of the money he makes and his dad is just super strict and he works for this guy named Jim Hawkins on his farm. He just does like labor for him. And, mm -hmm. you know, like he'll kind of just treat him like a child and just like kind of worthless. So Dave just feels like very misunderstood and disrespected and like that he's a real man and nobody actually sees that he's a real man. Yeah. So he's just like constantly like daydreaming about owning a gun to like prove his masculinity and prove that he deserves respect. So he buys a gun for $2 from this guy named Joe. Um, he goes to Hawkins farm and goes in the woods and he wants to shoot it. He's very excited to shoot his gun for the first time. And he ends, ends up shooting Hawkins mule named Jenny. Yeah. And Jenny dies and that kind of causes like a huge like event with all like the townspeople or whatnot and no one really believes Dave's story because he makes up a little lie um mm -hmm. then his mom and dad kind of drag it out of him and he tells it and then everyone's just laughing at him and he feels even more embarrassed um and then he just he takes the gun with him and he flees town yeah, you got it. That's everything. Yeah, I think the important part for him is the every, nobody, even after getting the gun, even after experiencing all the power of the gun, it does not solve any of his problems. He's still disrespected. He's still laughed at. He's still treated like a child. Uh, and so his only thing to do is escape um, with an unloaded gun, right? He, he shoots all the bullets out of the first and then gets on a train and, and goes away. Yeah, Caroline, your question, and even in your summary, you pointed out, it this has a lot to do with masculinity, right? Proving that he's a real man. Tell me where that comes from. What were you thinking? Well, like the whole story, pretty much, he's just talking like, no one treats me like a man, like I'm not a boy, like I deserve respect. And he just keeps going back to that same thought. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely sense a lot of like struggle within himself. Like he doesn't really have a clear sense of identity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he thinks a gun is the way to like show that he is a real man and that people like will have to respect him and he'll, he'll have like some sort of power because he's very like limited in what he can do in his life because yeah. he's a poor African-American man and like in that, time period 
he was very stuck. So he really thought that that would be like the key to all of his problems. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So Phoebe, you wanted to ask about the gun again. Uh, as so for it seems like for um, I've gotten really distracted for for in sanctuary the gun was really just like a tool. It existed. It happened. It helped him, you know, do what he needed to do. But for for Dave, it's very specifically about masculinity. Do you see any connections there, Phoebe? I was thinking, I mean, I feel like masculinity and kind of like this, in a sense, kind of go hand in hand where he's like, you know, I am a man, I can do this, I can take this gun, I can shoot it, and I can be a man. And I feel like guns often symbolize like that loss of innocence yeah. that you see in a lot of stories. But it just proves his innocence more when he misuses it and has to like embarrass himself in front of the whole town when his mommy and daddy come and have to like get this answer out of him that he accidentally shot this mule like yeah he just it's almost like a reverse argument he just messes everything up right well and I think the mule is interesting because it's Jenny Jenny the mule and he knows Jenny the mule and he talks to Jenny the mule before he accidentally shoots her so he has this relationship with the mule that it is very childlike yeah was, that part, I was like what is this is horrible yeah yeah, and he tries to help her. Hold on there, mule. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, like, Jenny, Jenny trembled. She's bleeding to death. Uh, he's And then he buries the gun, right? So it's not just that he killed her. Um, he didn't immediately take the gun and be like, yes, I've, I now have the power. He is disgusted by it, right? Uh, when he sees what guns do, he buries it, he hides it. Uh, but then he comes back for it. Dylan, I wonder if you want to say a little bit more about masculinity before we dig in too far. Yeah, I think like just the power of, of the gun is probably what makes him feel like a man or what yeah. he's like wanting to feel like. Um, he feels like he doesn't have um, that ability, like he doesn't have that power. Yeah. So that's like really what he's searching for. And he just wants to be taken seriously. But like, like we said earlier, I mean, at the end of the story, he gets like completely embarrassed. And then I think that's what leads him back to the gun after. Yeah. So it's kind of like a, a little, I don't know, it's a roller coaster of emotion. So he gets the gun. He feels like a man. He accidentally kills the mule. Oh, no, that's the worst thing that could have happened. I don't want anything to do with this. Then they start, you know, kind of proving his, he was right to begin with. He's got to go back. Right, so if anything had happened differently in that cycle, he might not have gone back to the gun, but because of the reaction of the people around him, uh, laughing at him, oh, you just bought a dead mule, uh, now you gotta pay for it. He's gotta pay for the mule that he, he killed. So he's gonna be working for this mule, he decided for two years, um, if he gets his $2 a month to pay for the $50 mule, then he'll, he'll never be out from under these people, right? He'll never be free of his employer. He'll never be free of his parents. They're never going to let him live it down. Uh, so he's got to go. Caroline, you brought up uh, while you were kind of talking about it, that it's not just that he's 17. It's the fact that he's 17 and black, that he's 17 and black and a boy, do you want to say any more about like why this is especially different for him? So um, um, I kind of like 
looked it up a little bit. I really like this story. So I was like kind of interested by it. Um, so like white men used to call African-American like men, boys as like a way to look down on them. Be like, oh, you're a boy. Like, you know what I mean? So Absolutely. he's just been like, I feel like that's kind of triggering for him because like he's just being looked down on and like his mom originally was like, you don't need a gun. You're just a boy. And his dad was even saying that like, you're a boy, like, what do you need a gun for? So just everybody in his life is just constantly belittling him, just being like, like treating him like a baby. And I think like he just kind of snaps and has enough of it. And he just thinks like, I don't, not even like snap because he doesn't intentionally do anything bad. Yeah. But him accidentally killing Jenny, like that just ended up like making his life a hundred times worse. Cause then he was like, like you said, he was just stuck to work for Hawkins for like. Yeah. Nothing was going to change for him more years. Yeah, and he had no hope. I think it's important what you said, Caroline. He does not have a hope of even after he reaches an age of maturity, being treated as a mature whole person. That may never happen for him. Um, it may never have happened for his father, right? Those things uh, still there. We did not read a story that I sometimes assign from um, John Steinbeck that's in our anthology. It's also about kind of becoming a man and part of becoming a man is getting a gun and doing violence. And um, it's told from the point of view of a California Mexican family, like Baja California, Mexico uh, family. So I think there's a little bit of, like it's in the air. It's, it's in our national story that part of adulthood or part of manhood especially includes passing through violence, especially with a gun. Can you think of any other stories that you know of? This is maybe an off topic question, but anything else that kind of has that narrative of boy becoming man through, through killing or through violence? I actually read for my African-American writers class. Um, we read this story, it was called Uncle Tom's Children, but I think it was only like one part of it. And it was basically like the same setup as Sanctuary where it's like these group of young black men like swimming in this, like, I don't know what they, something. And, you know, this guy comes along and is like threatening to shoot them and, you know, like being a horrible, horrible person and, you know, really blowing things out of proportion. And one of the black men shoots him out of pure self-defense because this man has a gun and he plans on killing all of them. And he does kill two of them. And then obviously like it turns into a whole thing where he has to like run from people trying to do these horrible things to him. And I feel like, you know, there's like this argument where it's like, who was more of a man the whole time? Like who, yeah. was it the man who initially put out the gun that is more of a man? And it's all very performative. This whole thing is all like performative masculinity, especially when he takes like at the end of almost a man where he takes the empty gun it's almost yeah. like like the term shell of a man. It's very much like, yeah, I this, but I'm a man because I have it. I have you know? to have it. Yes. Oh boy. 
Yeah, I think that's really getting into some different places. <laughs> what about, well, we're out of time, so I won't make you answer this question either. But I do think there's something about it. It may be violence against animals, right? Hunting, it might be, you know, killing your first bear, right? These are, I think, some American stories that we might need to think about, right? Think about that archetypal story uh, of becoming a man. Okay, any recommended media in our last 30 seconds that people should listen to or read or watch? for the weekend the story i just mentioned oh, oh yeah 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 tell the battle again uncle tom's children uncle tom's children in the section i think was called something about big boy leaving home Ooh, it was pretty good weird. and it was very it has like a very similar set of a sanctuary yeah nella larson's most famous novel is called passing uh, and it's about what you think it is it's about uh you know mixed race person moving north and attempting to pass for white and some of the challenges therefore uh, that go along with that so i recommend taking a look at that if you want to all right well thank you very much panelists you've been wonderful you've done a great job thank you thank you for listening and have a good day